millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. We've all got used to the idea of the Norman yoke, the enslavement of the Anglo-Saxon people by their French conquerors. But actually, Mark's argument suggests that it was quite contrary. And in fact, it was the Normans who were liberators. Is that so? Well, when you say it's my argument, it's, it's an argument that's been around for, for many years. It's, I'm not the first person to put it. I'm just restating it. Um, I think it depends who you were in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, the, the Norman yoke is, um, is, is a, a, a sort of a legend developed principally in the um, 17th century during the Civil War. Um, and from, for, from that point on, or in the middle, earlier in, the, in, the, in the, um, the Middle Ages itself, but from that point on, certainly in the 17th century, you have this idea of Anglo-Saxon England as a golden age where everybody was equal and there was a kind of proto-democracy in place um, and it was all swept away by the Normans. Um, now, um, what you do have after the Norman Conquest certainly is there are lots of people who are free to become... Um, less free, um, people who are, own their lands um, sort of uh, either under light lordship or under no lord at all are made um, dependent on Norman lords. So you get to hear a lot about that. What you don't get to hear a lot about is the people who are at the very bottom of the pile in Anglo-Saxon society, i.e. the slaves who you see in Doomsday Book um, and who we know about from um, Anglo-Saxon literary sources and from Anglo-Saxon wills. Um, now, it seems for them that the Norman Conquest improved their lot because the Normans didn't do slavery. Um, and so where you can measure it after the conquest, you see slavery in decline. And you also have chronicle comments um, noting that the Normans acted as liberators when it came to slaves. So when we talk about the Normans not having slaves, why was that? This was quite unusual in the world at that time, was it not? Well, I don't think it was particularly unusual in Europe. I mean, I've, I've, I've not devoted as much of my life, perhaps as I should, to studying um, uh, slavery in um, sort of Europe uh, in the early Middle Ages and, and, and around the turn of the millennium. Um, and I'm not altogether certain that anyone can put their finger on it and say precisely why slavery started to decline in, in say, Francia. Western Europe um, around the turn of the millennium. Um, I think once upon a time people put it down to 
um, economic reasons, you know, sort of the rise of a money economy meant that it was more profitable not to, to have slaves but have rent-paying tenants. Um, at other times, people have put it down to um, the, uh, sort of the, the objection of the church, but n neither of those arguments seem to stand up. I mean, the church in particular has always uh, never had a problem with slavery. You know, slavery occurs in the Bible, uh, and, um, you know, the church fathers were okay with slavery, so they just kind of say that, you know, it's a, they view, view slavery as a, as, a, as a condition that's kind of divinely ordained. Um, but so the Normans weren't unique in sort of doing away with slavery. See, the Normans, of course, originally had been Vikings. They were the, the, the Northmen who came and settled in that part of France um, in the late 9th and early 10th centuries. So they were, as Vikings, they were big on slavery when they first arrived in, in um, Francia. But by around um, the turn of the first millennium, certainly by the early decades of the 11th century, the Normans aren't doing slavery anymore. So they've adopted the, 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 the ways and the morals, if you like, of their Frankish neighbours. And as you pointed out, Mark, you're not the first person to uh, deal with this aspect of um, Anglo-Saxon slavery. But oh, if we, um, if I mean, we look say, at... I, I, this is just something that um, when I was doing my, my own book on the Norman Conquest, um, uh, I felt that whilst people knew the, the sort of the Henry's history version of the story, you know, sort of people getting arrows in the eye or, you know, mm -hmm. sort of William the Conqueror and Harold and um, the Battle of Hastings, that there were big themes that really um, went undiscussed in the popular literature. Um, uh, this was something that was I found arresting when I was a student 20 years ago. Um, this stuff that uh, John Gillingham, who was formerly at the LSE, did, did some um, pioneering work on. There's also a chap more recently um, called uh, David Wyatt, who's uh, did a big book on sort of um, slavery in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, about three or four years ago, um, so it's 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 a it's a topic which is is has been discussed and has been thoroughly researched at a high academic level, but you will not find very much discussion of it still at a popular level. I mean, historically, there are there are good reasons for that, of course, because um, for Victorian scholars and indeed for, for scholars for most of the 20th century, um, the Anglo-Saxons are us. You know, they're the English. Uh, we're the English, so therefore the Anglo-Saxons must be the good guys. The Normans import all the nasty stuff. And with very few exceptions, um, 19th and 20th century scholars did not want to discuss Anglo-Saxon slavery. You know, because the Anglo-Saxons were seen, again, it was seen as being a golden age from which we got um, you know, our democratic institutions, our sense of playing off a straight bat, etc., etc. And how true is that? Sorry? How true is that historiography? Well, as I say, I think it's a, it's a, it's a myth. Um, I mean, we, it's something I'm exploring in a piece that I'm sort of developing on my desk at the moment, myths about the Anglo-Saxons. I mean, there are, there are elements of Anglo-Saxon culture which were, um, uh, there were, there were elements of the Anglo-Saxon political process which were consultative, but then that was true of a lot of other, you know, sort of cultures in Western Europe at the time as well. You'll, 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 but the the the, um, the stuff you read about sort of um, the Witan as if it were kind of a uh, almost a sort of a, a parliament in embryo um, is, is just a it strikes me as a, as a nonsense. You know? So, what did the Normans actually bring? To, and we're talking about uh, the Ang 
uh, the Normans um, breaking down the idea of Anglo-Saxon slavery. They were not slaves themselves. What else did they contribute to that nascent English state? Oh, well, contribute sounds... I mean, when you talk about contribute, it sounds like a, a positive thing. I mean, the thing to, perhaps the thing I conclude in the article was saying, don't get me wrong, you know, the, the Normans caused enormous amount of death and suffering and bloodshed. The conquest itself was a very bloody act. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, you have the, the, um, the harrying of the north, you know, the, the, the deliberate um, destruction of human and animal life in the north of England um, from 10, the winter of 1069. So no doubt that the, Ang that the Normans were agents of destruction and they were written up that way by the English at the time. So you know, I'm, not, I'm not here to sort of go into bat for the Normans. Um, but well, the reason that 1066 is such an important date, the most important date, um, you could say, in in uh, English history, is because so much changed so quickly. If every historical question ultimately boils down to rate of change, what stayed the same, what changed, is everything changes with the Norman Conquest. Um, so there's architecture, for example. We have castles for the first time, bringing up you know, at, at a rate of knots across the country, hundreds of castles being founded. Um, we have um, all the major churches being ripped down and replaced. So England has 15 bishoprics in um, 1066, or in the 11th century, and uh, so 15 cathedrals. All those cathedrals, within two generations, are ripped down and rebuilt. Same true of all the major abbeys. So you have this architectural revolution um, on a scale which nothing that comes, nothing before or after uh, can compare with. Um, in terms of attitudes, they talk about slavery. In terms of attitudes, another big change that Norman's bringing is chivalry. Um, and that's, that's not chivalry in the sense of um, writing letters to ladies or putting your cloak in a puddle for a lady. It essentially boils down to not killing your opponents when they're on their knees begging for mercy, um, which is, a, again, a, it's, it's, a, it's a new attitude. The Anglo-Saxons haven't done that. The Vikings hadn't done it. The Anglo-Saxons hadn't done it. Um, so if you look at the reigns of not just Canute, as you would expect, as a Viking king, begins his reign with a jolly round of executions. But if you look at his predecessor, the, the English Ethelred the Unready, several bloody purges during his reign where people who are politically opposed to the king are just taken out and, and, and killed. And it goes on as well, in, even in Edward the Confessor's reign, in the saintly Edward the Confessor's reign, um, Tostig Godwinson does for his political opponents in the north by having them executed. Um, uh, his father, um, Harold's father as well, um, Earl Godwin, um, is, is responsible indirectly, if not directly, for the death of Edward the Confessor's brother, Alfred. So the way you, did, you dealt with your political opponents in, in pre-conquest England was simply to kill them. And monastic chroniclers might bewail that, but secular society clearly regarded it as a useful and acceptable part of the political process. Now, the Normans, for all that they were extremely bloody in their warfare, did not do that. But despite all the invective that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle pours on William the Conqueror, most of it justified, one thing he's not able to say is he took people out and killed them. There's only one guy of rank after the conquest, um, Wolfioff, um, Earl of Northumbria, who is executed in 1076. And after that, you don't have any Earl executed in England until 1306, 1305, 1306, the very end of Edward I's reign. Anyway, so you have nearly two and a half centuries of restraint 
when it comes to political killing. It's a taboo. Now, that shift in attitude is, is a direct consequence of the Norman Conquest. So again, that's that's this is the and the other thing that's that's very important in terms of the British Isles is that these attitudes um, uh, in terms of feeling that political killing is wrong, in feeling that slavery is wrong, because the Norman Conquest, the, the massive change with the Conquest is the entire elite of Anglo-Saxon England is swept away. Thousands of new people are suddenly in charge, both in terms of secular society and the church, because that new elite is in place with these new attitudes, with these new ideas in their heads. Those become the norms in England, but they are not the norms in Wales, Scotland, and in Ireland. And so two generations after the conquest, the English start to look at their Celtic neighbours who are just doing things the way the Anglo-Saxons had always done, i.e. practicing war as slave hunting and practicing political killing. And the English are now looking at the Celts and saying, these people are barbarians. And that, the discourse shifts in that way as well. Again, this is something that, that John Gillingham has explored brilliantly in the last 20 years. Um, but that uh, sudden um, shift in, in regarding the Celt as different, not, not just different in terms of um, race, in terms of blood, but also in terms of being on the, the wrong side of the civilized barbarian divide, underpins the, the English expansion into the Celtic countries that goes on for the rest of the Middle Ages and beyond. Well, the creation of a hostile stereotype of the Celt. Um, so that, again, is, is something that occurs as a direct result of the Norman Conquest. So, big change with the Norman Conquest. Well, thank you, Mark. It's an absolutely fascinating article, Breaking the Bonds. It's in uh, the March edition of history today and I have to say that John Gillingham actually is going to be writing for us in the April edition on uh, the naming of England so thank you Mark thank you very much not at all my pleasure Paul